Let's take our Bibles very quickly and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 this evening. John chapter 2. Glad that you're here this evening. John chapter 2. Hope you have some notes to take some notes tonight. Help you build you up in the word of God's grace this evening. John chapter 2, verse 13. If your neighbor next to you doesn't have a Bible, if you'll be kind enough to share your Bible with them, help them find their place, that'd be a blessing. Good to see a lot of you back. And some of you were out of town, some of you were sick, and we're glad you're back in church tonight, and we're praying for God to meet with us in a special way. John chapter 2, verse 13. Say amen if you're there. Amen. Verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, Forty and six years was his temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But notice verse 21. But he spake of the temple of his body. Tonight I want us to just do a study this evening about the body. Jesus spoke about the temple of his body. And I have a message that I want to speak to you this evening about entitled Bodyguard. And uh, the importance of us just knowing what God's mind has to say about our body, especially since there's quite a few of you here tonight who are new believers, and some of you perhaps have never studied that, and we want this, the Lord to have His way in our hearts about that. Bless your word tonight. Have thine own way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, I've got a question for you tonight. How many of you love your body? You better say yes, amen. You can't do anything about it if you don't, amen. How many of you love your body? How much do you love your body? I was reading as I was preparing for the message, I don't know if you knew this, but you know the basketball superstar LeBron James spends $1.5 million a year, $1.5 million a year for the conditioning of his body. Man, just give me $1.5 million to pay off, our, pay off our debt, we'd be happy, amen? He spends $1.5 million on the care and conditioning of his body. They say he has a team... That includes a former Navy SEAL who serves at his, as his, his biomechanist who kind of monitors everything. He has a recovery coach. He has a team of physical coaches and trainers. He has personal chefs and masseuses. And in his home, he has a full gym. Of course, you know, he relocated from Cleveland over here to L.A. In his home here in L.A. is a full gym, an ice tub, a hot tub, a hyperbaric chamber in his home. He has all of this to basically keep himself in tip-top shape. James considers this an investment in his future. Now, I won't go to the extreme of saying maybe you need to spend $1.5 million for your body. I think just get some old-fashioned dumbbells, amen, and get a good pair of running shoes and go run around the block a few times there, and you'll be in good shape there. But, you know, it's interesting that some people believe so much about the care of their body, they would spend such money. They say that the average American spends $3,348 per year or as much as $200,000 on the average during their lifetime for the care of their bodies. The number is skewed a little bit because it, it amounts to about $275,000 on average for the ladies and about $175,000 on the average for the men. Now, when we consider our lives, we have to remember that when we go to Genesis chapter 2, God made us spirit, soul, and body. The emphasis is on the spiritual aspect of the individual. And uh, David, when he considered what we are and how God made us, he made this statement. He said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I believe the same thing, amen? I believe that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We consider the design of God in our lives. Dr. John Medina, who's a genetic engineer at the University of Washington, said this. He said, the average human heart pumps over 1,000 gallons a day, over 55 million gallons of blood during a lifetime. They say that much blood that our body produces could fill 13 super tankers. It never sleeps, unlike the rest of us. It never sleeps, beating about two and a half billion times during our lifetime. They say our lungs contain 1,000 miles of capillaries. The process of exchanging oxygen for carbon monoxide is so complicated, it is more difficult to exchange oxygen for CO2 than for a man to be shot out of a cannon, if you can imagine that. 
They say our DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. 1.8 meters of DNA are folded into each cell nucleus. A nucleus is 6 microns long. This is like putting 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. And is, is, it's, it's, just, it's not simply just like that. It's folded over and so forth there. But when you think about the intricate design of the body, you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made. 2019 is on the way. Invariably, some of us have set as part of our goals. We've set Bible reading as our goals, praying as our goal, church attendance as our goal, serving God as our goal. But within all that, probably a lot of us, uh, somewhere along the way, set some goals about our body. Maybe goals like in terms of diet. Brother Danny alluded to that. He said he broke his goal of not drinking soda. What, on your third day, Brother Denny? And uh, some of us may have diet restrictions and things of that nature. Some of us have decided we're going to get a little more rest this year. Some of us may have decided the more exercise and conditioning are part of that. You know, those are all good things. Notice verse 21 of what we just read this, morning, this evening. Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Very first time it's mentioned that the analogy that the body is a temple. He was saying something to the Jews there that was very important. This evening, sometimes we can, as we get in our studies, we want to just look at just something perhaps that we are overlooking a lot of times. We kind of, we kind of just segmentize or compartmentalize our bodies separate from the rest of our spiritual life. But that's not how God has it. And we need to go back to the scriptures this evening as we begin a new year to consider what the Bible has to say about the body. Notice four things tonight as we go through our study. Notice in our study, first of all, in this chapter, the context of the passage. Verses 13 to 16, Jesus was there in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover. Jesus is between 30 and 31 years of age. This is not the first time he went to the feast of the Passover. This is something he grew up doing. This is something he was familiar with. He's walking into the courtyard, and he saw a familiar sight, sight that he'd seen many times. He saw tables set up. He saw what we call people doing a, a, you know, commercial business there, where basically some people, a lot of Jews, they would, all the Jews would converge to Jerusalem on the feast of the Passover. They would observe it. Many of them did not, were not local, so they had to buy doves, and they'd buy their sheep there, so forth there, depending on their economic status. They would buy their animals there for the sacrifices that would be done. Some would come from other areas, and there would be the exchange of money, things of that nature. And of course, all when that first started, that was all in good intention. But Jesus had seen for many, many times that this had been a commercialization. The Jews that were setting up there selling doves, selling sheep, uh, exchanging money, they were doing that to the ta by taking advantage of their fellow Jews. And Jesus is something that was just kind of an outburst, if you would. Notice in verse 14, it says there, he found in the temple. In other words, he intentionally looked for these people. It just wasn't by chance. This is a familiar sight he saw many times. But at that moment of time, as he's inaugurating, he's in the process of inaugurating his public ministry, he did something that was very unusual, something that was very unsettling to everyone there. He went there and he declared his sovereignty, declared his deity as being equal to the Father. And he did that by just going over there and overturning the tables. Not about you, but if you're sitting at a table and someone just abruptly comes there and overturns the table. You're just kind of startled about what's going on there. And who is this guy and what's going on? The other day, I, was, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but some guy went to a McDonald's somewhere in another state and he made a comment to a woman and, and didn't like something there. And all of a sudden, he reached over and started holding on her and wouldn't let her go. And she was very startled by that. She started flailing away, punching the guy to, to get him to let loose. And he's much bigger than her. I mean, took her totally by surprise by that. And you can imagine as Jesus went there to the temple and he walks around to these temples and he overthrows them and then he basically chastens them. He says, you you know, make not my father's house a merchandise, and they're declaring that he and the father are one with each other. And you notice here, Jesus is what's now, is not Solomon's temple, but it's Herod's temple. And he went to this place, and he searched some things that are very important. Notice in verse 15, he made a scourge of small cords. He drove out all of the temple, those money changers and those that sold and were taking advantage of that situation. They were not there for the glory of God. They were not there to promote the things of God. They were there to commercialize and take advantage of their fellow Jews. And he drove these people out. He was making a very strong statement about his authority, a very strong statement about his association, his relationship with God the Father. He drove these people out. And you can imagine very firmly the Lord Jesus Christ saying in verse 16, take these things hence, take your junk out, don't make this a house of merchandise, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And you can imagine all this going on there. He's kind of recalibrating everybody's hearts and minds as, why do we go to church? What is church all about anyway? 
And the feast of the Passover had now become a place where people were just got used to commercialization. Hey, can I remind you something? Let's always come to God's house with the idea, let's not get used to certain things the way they are if they don't fit with the glory of God. Everybody's sitting around there thinking, what is going on here? And I remind you, tonight as we look at what Jesus did here, he was t- telling that the, the, temp- the temple was designed as a gathering house. God's people assemble here. We go to Hebrews chapter 10, and we do us all good to revisit that in our devotions early on this week, uh, before this week's over, to remind ourselves, why do we go to church? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Reminding ourselves so much more we must assemble that we come to church to edify and build up one another through good works. And, and it says that we're reminded here that church is a gathering house. The temple was designed as a glorious house. That was the place where when the first time when Solomon built his temple. And they did the dedication and the Shekinah glory came down and filled the house of God. It's a gathering house. It's a glorious house. But we're reminded it's God's house. In verse 16 it says, make not my father's house. He wanted them to be very clear that the house of God was a place of prayer, not to be a den of thieves, not to be a place where things take advantage of one another. I was out visiting the, uh, several months ago and we visited this lady that, uh, that comes off and on there and she was involved in a, one of these multi, multi-level marketing businesses there that many of you would be familiar with and kind of find out that she knew some other people there and I started realizing there was a hive of people in our church that were kind of all part of this multi-level marketing scheme that was going on there and they're all basically kind of multi-level marketing off each other there and so I think when they got wind that I knew about it, I kind of noticed within about a couple weeks they all kind of dispersed and just haven't been back here for a little bit here you know and uh, of course we want them to come to church to hear the word of God and God would save them but I think they kind of found out that we kind of knew what they were here for it was really trying to find other prospects for their business and add to, add to their kingdom there if you can call it that they can add to and we never said anything that was negative about it. I think that just, we just let them know, well, you know, we come to church to worship God. We don't come to church, exchange business cards, and do our thing. There, this, our reason for being here is to, is to glorify God. And Jesus reminding these, these people here, he was recalibrating them about the things of God. And then notice this in verse 17. Jesus referred to his, in his passion to something that's found in Psalms 69, verse 9. And the Bible says here in, in verse, verse 17, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Now nobody up in those years, for many years, nobody had come to the temple there and it's exhibited such passion, such zeal, such a stand. I mean, can you imagine what, what kind of waves that sent when Jesus overthrew the temples? Can you imagine what people thought, what, who, what gives him the right to do this? Who does he think he is anyway? He's from Nazareth anyway. Who does this man from Nazareth think he is? And he says here that the disciples, remember, the first thing came to their mind, the zeal of thy house has eaten me up. And the first thing they're thinking about, man, here is a man that is zealous about the house of God. And I want to ask you a question. How zealous are you about God's house tonight? Amen? I mean, how zealous are you about coming to church how zealous are you about waving your Bible and saying, amen, let's hear more preaching, amen? I mean, how zealous are you about, we, if we call a prayer meeting off, off schedule, off Wednesday night, you're going to come to God's house to pray? I mean, how zealous are we about taking up offerings and giving our tithe and being a participant on the 20th, on our, the third of our, of, our, of our 1K offering? I'm just saying tonight, the disciples remember they saw this zeal that Jesus had. And listen, by the way, when he overthrew the temp, those tables, the zeal that Jesus exhibited was a lot more than the zeal those men had for getting money and Exchange other things there at that moment of time. The context there, we see that the temple is a place where the worship of God, and the Passover sacrifice, and the ceremonialism had become second place and third place to the commercialism that was going on there. That's the context we're looking at. But notice the secondly tonight, would you notice the culture? And go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Jesus said in verse 21, he spoke about the temple of his body. The Jews saw all this and they said, well, this is unique. There must be a sign behind this. What's the sign about this? And Jesus seized upon that opportunity. He's talked about the resurrection there. But he made a statement that was inescapable because now we find as we go to 1 Corinthians 3, somewhere along the way that statement has transferred itself through the disciples. It's found its way to the Apostle Paul. Paul, as he's writing the, the first letter to the Corinthians from, from the city of Rome, he references the same concept about our body being a temple. Notice in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? 
He's not making a suggestion. He's making a fact. You are the temple of God. Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now I want you to consider, we have this, we have this context in John chapter 2 of Jesus going into uh, to Herod's temple on the time of the feast of the Passover and kind of recalibrating things and getting people to understand, hey listen, we don't come here to do money changing. We don't come here to take advantage of one another. We come to God, especially the feast of the Passover, to remind ourselves of the great deliverance God gave us back in Egypt and remind ourselves of the shed blood of Christ, and we're reminding ourselves that, that the Passover is pointing to Jesus. Of course, he was the Passover lamb, amen? amen. And now we get to the Apostle Paul here, and he's talking about a church that was divided, a church that was carnal, a church where their emphasis was on falling personalities. And he talks about the he talks later on about rewards in heaven before all this. He brings in context both corporately and individually about the temple or body. And Paul has something bigger in mind. Culturally, Paul had been there to Herod's temple many times himself. He'd been participant in the feast of the Passover. He'd been at the, he'd been at the feast of the tabernacles. He'd been at those three requirements where all the males were supposed to, to go to the, the different feasts during the year and participate. He'd been through all that. But Paul, if you remember, is on his second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit of God forbidding him from going east. Holy Spirit of God abruptly stops him, leads him. He tells him no at two locations, leads him to Troas. There at Troas, you've heard me say this many times, I believe it was at Troas that, that God just had to get Paul at a place where he had to, had to stop moving around. And, hey, he had to stay in one place and pray and see God's face. And there, he just was being still and to know who God was. At Troas, God gave him a very clear, distinct vision that he was supposed to go to the area of Macedonia. And there at the, the place called Philippi, that would be the start of his second missionary journey. We know that second missionary journey was a phenomenal journey that he had. He had incredible fruit. But listen, if he hadn't obeyed the Lord on that second missionary journey, we wouldn't have had the books, to, uh, the book of Philippians. We wouldn't have gotten the book of Ephesians. We wouldn't have got, wouldn't have got the book of uh, Thessalonians. We wouldn't, have got any, we wouldn't have got the book of Corinthians, which we're in right now. We wouldn't have had all of those things. But Paul is unfolding his way there. He has much opposition. But his first time he goes to these cities, and I think of Corinth. In Corinth, he goes there, and here's this, this huge metropolis, this huge culture of people. And if you look on a map where Corinth is at, Corinth was at a very strategic location. It was a very largely populated area. It was a commercial trading post. Ships would import export from that area. There was a great isthmus that connected that, that Corinth up back to the Macedonian area. It was a strategic location, and Paul going there, he knew his history, and if you know anything about your history about Corinth, you know that that was a, that was a place that was known for its architecture, it was known for its buildings, it was known for what's called the Acro-Corinth, the hill on the top side, which if you stood up there, you could look out and you could see Athens, and you could look out and you could see some of those cities. It was a great historic point. Many people went there as kind of a tourist point, but foremost, of all the architectures you'd find in Corinth was it, were the many temples, and foremost of the temples was the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the patron goddess of Corinth. She's the patron goddess of the pagans of that day, the Grecian culture. They erected these statues for her, and they had different shrines all over Corinth that, that showed their reverence for Aphrodite. I mean, really, if you look at it, it was a, it was a woman-centric, a female-centric deity that they worshipped there. And Aphrodite, he, one of the places where they had a shrine was there in the Acro Corinth as a way of saying anybody who ventures in here to Corinth would recognize that this is that she is our goddess who is our protector. They saw this woman as her, their protector. Now, they, 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 they worshiped Zeus and all those other Grecian gods, and, and uh, Poseidon was one of their big gods that they served. But listen, the one god that stood out heads and shoulders above every other god they had that they worshiped there in Corinth was this goddess by the name of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of, that was her protector. She was the goddess of the dead. But there was this huge temple there that was fixated in Paul's mind when he saw this temple. 
And the centrality of worship at Corinth was right there, the temple of Aphrodite. A place where they hired a thousand prostitutes. Where the practice of worship involved the body. And men came from different places. Everybody knew about Corinth. Everybody knew about Corinth in that culture. It was a wicked city. In fact, to be called a Corinthian was considered a, a very slanderous term to call somebody a Corinthian. Remember that? And Paul, as he's going there, not because he's there as a tourist. Thank God he went there as a missionary. Amen. And he goes there as a tourist. And he goes there to see the sights. He knew of the architecture, and it was grand architecture. He saw as the sun was setting that the trade of the prostitutes there in Corinth was just, that was the life of the city. And worship, as it was practiced back in that time, was basically, was expressed that men who indulged with these prostitutes and prostitutes bore their trade. And by the way, there were male prostitutes as well there. That it was, it was considered that the, 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 that, that the whole concept of worship was the usage of their body in essential format that was worship. And in the mindset of the typical Corinthian, the, the typical pagan of that day, the Grecian culture, that they just knew that was part of their worship. Their whole idea and concept of worship was that your body was an integral part of that. You think about Paul here as he's writing here. Notice verse 16. He speaks about a temple. Not the temple of Aphrodite. Not the temple that housed prostitutes. But he's bringing them back full circle of the idea of a temple, a sacred house, a place where God is to be worshipped, a place where God had in mind when Solomon's temple was, was, was constructed and opened up, that the Spirit of God would come into and inhabit that place. The culture, if you notice here, the culture in Paul is writing to, the culture in which Jesus was ministering and before Paul started ministering there, it was a culture that was very hedonistic and very, very, very just paganistic and very hedonistic in its ways and, and where the body was, was just lowered to the level of just a very sensual level. There was disrespect regard of just what exactly is the body all about and how's the body supposed to be used here and the culture in which Paul's writing to he's writing to believers that he's led to Christ in Corinth some of them were Jews that probably ventured off at night who were not faithful to their wives this is before they got saved who participated in such activities because as you read your way through here in, in Corinthians we get to chapter 5 and chapter 6 and he's dealing with some really difficult situations there at the church of Corinth he's dealing with sins of immorality that are very very just very difficult and he talks about he talks about immorality quite a bit in chapter 6 as we'll get to that in a little bit there and as he deals with all that these Corinthians know exactly what Paul's talking about because they have been trained and raised in a culture believing that your body, the only thing your body's good for is for sensual delight and sensual appetites. And we look at our culture today, we're not very far from where the Corinthians were at. We indulge our bodies. It's about feeding our bodies. Where some of us are going to leave here tonight, and if you didn't have supper, the first thing you'd be thinking about, I've got to get something to eat, amen? And if you had your dinner, you're probably falling into a coma right now, getting ready to go to sleep pretty soon, amen, you know? Just like LeBron James, he's not, he's not the exception. How much time do we put in our bodies? If even the time we give to our bodies for our grooming and all of those things and conditioning, all that, I mean, do we even give God equal time for our soul? I mean, you know what I'm saying there. And by the way, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not against conditioning. I'm not against exercise. I think if we all are honest, we need more exercise, not less. Amen? You know? And exercise is good for your body. You need exercise. But bodily exercise profits little. Godliness profits much. Amen? And Paul is dealing with a cultural context. I understand the average person gets saved nowadays in a church like ours, a strong gospel preacher. By the way, aren't you glad for a strong gospel preaching church? Amen. We take for granted the preaching of the gospel. I promise you, there's not a Sunday school class, there's not a youth mini or college mini or any kind of thing we do or service where the gospel is never preached. Amen. 
But you ask the average person, well, I'm go- I've got this membership at the gym. I'm not against that. I'm going to run this 5K. I'm not against that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm taking these vitamins. You know, and those are all good things. All good things. All good things. But I wonder if we took some time can identify how we use our time during the day. How much of it is giving attention to the body? That's context Paul's writing about. He's talking about the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm ministering this culture here, and, he kind of, and he's, he's dealing with the carnality of this church at Corinth. Notice in chapter 3, verse 16, he's talking about rewards in heaven. He's talked about just their mindset about things and, and build, what they're building upon. And then he kind of just moves at that whole discussion because he's going somewhere with this. And he says, don't you know? Don't you know? It, which basically means you do know. Because he had taught them this. He spent 18 months there at Corinth. And I want to tell you, the 18 months he spent there, it wasn't they came to church once a week. They had church every day with Paul. Yeah. I mean, Paul went to every house and he preached the word of God. And he made sure he had Bible studies with people. He kept things active. He kept things going. And these people have been taught about the nature of the body. And he taught them about the body. And we're going to see some things about the body tonight that are critical about our Christian life there. And so he comes to them and these people had gravitated and went far from where, where Paul had taught them. And he says, makes this bold statement in verse 16. Know you not that you are the temple of God. He's looking at people who are fallen into indulgences and immorality. And he talks about in verse 6, in chapter 6, where they've got to get right with God and about the, how that consumes their whole worship. By the way, let me tell you tonight, whatever you give the most time to is what you worship. And so we see a context, we see a culture, but you notice the custody tonight. Know ye not, new Christian, growing Christian, seasoned Christian, everybody, if you profess to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, say amen. Amen. That's all of us. Know ye not, you are the temple of God. Can I tell you something tonight? You had no say in the matter. If you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, your body became the temple of God. You have no say in the matter. He says in verse 16, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And the image Paul has here takes us back to the days of Solomon's temple when the Shekinah glory came down. Read that over in 1 Kings 8. What a wonderful, wonderful event that was, and it wasn't the only time. Notice 1 Corinthians 6, if you would, verse 19 and 20. What? And Paul's dealing with some really tough issues leading up to verse 19, if you're familiar with that. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Again, he's making that phrase again. Which is in you, which ye have of God. He's not disputing their save. He's not disputing the fact that the Spirit of God lives in, but he had to make a very, very bold statement. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. Notice this phrase, you're not your own. You're not your own. For you're bought with a prize, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God. Hey, look at Ephesians chapter 2. That's not the only place he mentioned, because in Ephesians he had to say the same thing, because he encountered the very same thing in every city he went to, but he had to mention this in Ephesus, because the practices in Ephesus were very similar to what he saw in Corinth. Yeah. And very early on, notice what he says in verses 21 and 22. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. He's talking about us. And whom you also are built together, notice this, for habitation of God through the Spirit. Hey, did you catch a phrase he's using? You are the temple of God. Your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. You're a habitation of God. Hey, hey, fathom this with me. Look up here. The God of all creation. The God who's all holy. We go to Isaiah chapter 6 and we see the, we see the, the angelic bodies around the throne of God uh, chanting and crying, Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah trembled and he saw that, hey, that, that same God who made all things, who's all eternal, he's all knowing and all powerful, the God of the resurrection, the God who made you and me. Hey, that God inhabits every one of us who are saved. Amen. He lives inside of us. Do you get what I'm saying? We are the habitation of God. We are the habitation of God. 
Just as that, as they were looking forward to the Shekinah glory coming down in Solomon's temple, and just as they did when the first tabernacle tent was made, and the Shekinah glory came down upon them, he reminds you tonight that was the habitation of God temporarily. Hey, you became the permanent habitation of God when you got saved. There's a custody there. There's an ownership issue there. First of all, did you notice there's the purchase Verse 20 says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are bought with a price. You ever think about sports? How they make these trades of players? I mean, bottom line is you're owned by the team. Amen? They pay X millions of dollars. It just blows my mind for all that, but you, you belong to that team. Until you become a free agent. Then you find somebody else that owns you. You know, the whole, the whole thing with athleticism, who's going to own me? Who's going to give me the biggest price? And, and they basically sell their efforts for that. Notice he says, you're bought with a price. We are the purchased possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a bad thing. That's a glorious thing. Amen? We belong to him. The purchase price that Jesus paid for you and me is his shed blood. We've been bought out of the slave market of sin. If you could imagine being a commercial market, that's the idea that in a commercial market, a slave's put on sale, and some, they're looking for someone good that will buy them. And listen, but a slave's life was a hard life, and a slave's life was a terrible life, and a slave had no rights, and slaves were mistreated, and, and they could find some of the wealth, take care of them, that would be good. But that was the exception and not the rule. Aren't you glad it's the image he gives there, you and I are in the slave market of sin. Hey, sin is a bad taskmaster, amen? Sin is a terrible taskmaster. Sin, listen, the world thrills, but then it kills. It fascinates, and then it assassinates. I mean, sin is a bad taskmaster, but thank God Jesus shed his blood for you and me. He shed his precious blood on the cross. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. There's nothing else that could buy you and me our salvation and our freedom. Only the blood of Jesus Christ could accomplish that. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore on yourselves and all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Notice, to feed the church of God. Notice, which he's purchased with his own blood. He didn't buy us with silver and gold. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but the precious blood of Christ is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hey, beloved, tonight we need to thank God we are purchased possession. We've been bought with a price. In whom you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The word redeemed is such a wonderful, wonderful story. A wonderful, wonderful word. We've been bought. We've been purchased. He shed the blood. That was the payment price that satisfied God's men were purchased. And then that purchase price, when he paid the price, God took ownership. Stories told of a slave that was living up in the Missouri area. Her name was Elizabeth Keckley. Before the Civil War began, Elizabeth Keckley, her greatest desire was to be bought out of, bought of slavery. She wanted to purchase a freedom for herself and for her son. So her owner told her, she, she kind of badgered him and badgered him, I, you know, if I gave you enough money, would you set me free? So finally he looked at her and he, you know, she's just very simple woman. He said, Elizabeth, if you give me $1,200 U.S. money, and that was a lot of money back in that. It's a lot of money, too, but it was a lot of money back in that time. You give me $1,200 U.S. money, I'll set you and your son free. Man, she went to work. I mean, that lady worked seven days a week. She saved what money she could. She just was very frugal in what she did. She tried to save what money she could, but she just was not coming up with enough money anytime soon. She told, her, she told her owner, listen, I'm going to go up to uh, New York City. You give me some time off, I'll go there. I know I can get better paying jobs up there, and I'll go there to, to raise the money. Wait, would, you, would you let me go? And he was a little fearful of that. Well, along the way, as she's just talking and trying to negotiate with him to let her go, to go up there to raise the money, some wealthy people who knew about her and knew her kindness and her genuineness, they called for her to come see them and it's kind of like we take, you and me taking an offering here at church. It's just a bunch of these wealthy people. says, well, Elizabeth, if it's $1,200 take, there's several of us here. We'll put in the money. We'll give you the money so that you can take this money and present it to your owner, your master, so you can buy out your freedom. And these people came up with exactly $1,200 for this lady. She took the money, 
went back to the city there and uh, St. Louis there and paid the, gave the money. And what she could not do on her own, somebody else came along the way and provided all the money that she needed to pay her. That's what Jesus did for you and me. That's why good works are not sufficient. Good works won't do. I was talking to a lady the other day. My uh, brother, brother Eugene and I were out so many and went to talk to a lady the other day. And uh, just, you know, she said, well, you know, I think I, I, I'm going to get to heaven and all this. I said, man, there's never enough good works. And by the way, it doesn't matter what good works you have. God doesn't give you credit for your good works. Amen? Not of works does any man should boast. God doesn't want anybody going to heaven who could boast that they got in through good works. Not of works does any man should boast. Amen? There's the purchase. Jesus bought the price for us. But notice the possession you're not your own let's think about it for a minute you don't own you God owns you (laughs) I don't own me God owns me and that concept was not novel or new when Paul wrote that every Jew knew that look at Deuteronomy 32 6 Deuteronomy 32, 6 says, Do you thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that has bought thee? It was not a novel concept. It was not a new concept. But listen, nobody likes to know that somebody owns him. All of us like to have this idea that we are our own man. We have our own liberty. Let me tell you tonight, you are not your own according to the scriptures. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. We see that song, now I belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me. Hey, listen, when you got Jesus in your heart for salvation, it wasn't a one-way deal. It's a two-way deal. Jesus paid the price and with his shed blood so that you could be saved, that, he, that, that, that you could be redeemed, and you could have forgiveness. But listen, the moment you took Jesus' Savior, you also said, I make my body, make my life a habitation of God. I make my body the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside me. And listen, we need to fathom thought. God changed our life. That's why when you look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, listen, being in Christ means Jesus is in you. If any man be Christ, he's a new creature. What's happened to me? Something's happened. Listen, the old is on and the new is in. The new is the Holy Spirit of God. The very start of salvation, he took ownership of us. We are God's property. That's why it's wonderful when you consider the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why we know every saved believer is eternally secure. Amen? You're not your own. You're the temple of God. God inhabits us. The moment you get saved, as we read in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we become the, the permanent dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. We're sealed by that Holy Spirit of redemption. We're thankful tonight that and we're sealed, sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. We, be, we receive the earnest of our inheritance. His living inside of us is kind of the down payment, if you would, before we, we, could, we reach that place of glorification. We, he lives inside of us, but he owns us and he controls us and he's, he's, he's control of all things. And we have to understand something tonight as we start this new year. We're not our own. We belong to him. I think a lot of us are like Peter. Go with me to John chapter 13. Jesus there in that upper room, he's did something. Again, he was known for doing a lot of things abruptly. I think it's a good thing in leadership. You do things abruptly sometimes. And everybody's eating. They're lounging back on their couches. And Jesus goes to the front of the door where there is a basin he puts a towel over his, his forearm with this basin, and he goes down. He, uh, he loosens the sandals of one, of one of the disciples, and he put, takes that cloth, and he starts washing his feet. He's washing the feet of them, and Peter's watches because Peter knows he's down the line there, and Peter's getting really, really uncomfortable with this idea of Jesus washing his feet. He's really uncomfortable with the, about the fact the Lord has, has lowered himself down to wash his feet, and he's, he's coming alongside of him to do that, and he comes to him. Notice in verse 6 here, he comes to Peter, and it says, he then come to thee to Simon Peter, and before Jesus could touch him, notice Peter said to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? He says, Lord, are you going to wash me too? Do I need to be washed? Well, I think the odor from his feet suggested that, amen, you know? I think the look of his toenails suggested he needed washing, amen? He'd been out there in those, those, those streets out there, amen? Dost thou wash me? And Jesus answered, can you imagine how meekly and yet strongly Jesus says this? What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. He said, you may not comprehend it now, One day you're going to be preaching, you're going to understand this. Peter didn't want anything to do with it. Look at verse 8. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never 
wash my feet. You know what he's saying to Jesus? Look it up here. You know what he's saying to Jesus? Hands off. Hands off, Jesus. Hands up. Now, we know there's two different words used for wash. The word for wash that he's using right here is the word that describes washing a part of the body. He's not talking about a washing for salvation. That's a different word he uses. The washing for salvation he uses one time in that passage. And he talks about that's when we one time come to Christ as our Savior and our sins are washed in blood. But the washing he's talking about here is a continual cleansing we need from sin. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus telling, was telling, symbolically telling these guys, he says, listen, you're going to need a continual cleansing. You need a continual washing. You're going to walk in this world and you're going to get your feet dirty. And listen, you and I are going to walk in this world and we're going to get our lives dirty. We're gonna, things, he just says, it's, just, it's going to happen, but you've got to come for cleansing. And that's why it's good to, to have your devotion every day because you need a cleansing, amen? You need to come to God and wash your hands and wash your feet. Hey, listen, before the priest could go into the into that tabernacle to serve God, there was a laver there, and at that laver, he'd wash his hands and wash his feet. And no priest could proceed further unless he'd been to that laver first, amen? Peter, Jesus was asserting, I owned you, Peter. Peter said, hands off. Don't touch me, Lord. You're not your own, but a lot of us, we say to Jesus, no, you can't have that. It doesn't matter who the personality is to preach it. The fact of the matter is, no, hands off, Jesus. You can't touch me. Hands off. You have no part in this. But Jesus said, you are not your own. And so we see the context, and we see the culture from Paul's view, and we see this custody, but let's draw it all together. Would you notice the consecration? Go back to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and we're almost done. Paul is writing to believers in a cultural context just like you and me. And as we read through chapters 5 and 6, we get a very great sense there's this low, low view believers had about their body and how it played in the overall plan of God. And Paul said in verse 18, because there were sins of immorality that he had to deal with there, he said in verse 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does it doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. He sinned with sins of the flesh. And he talks about those in chapter 5, chapter 6, which we're not going to get into tonight. But in chapter 6, verses 19, 20, he closes that off, and he makes a statement here that he repeats again in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. He makes a statement about what we call in our circles Consecration. Ascending apart. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple? It's the habitation of God. That your body is more than just a shell, brother and sister in Christ. Your body is not a machine. Your body is the temple of God. He lives inside. That's His. It's his temple. Know you not that you're the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? By the way, if you're not saved, he's not in you. You need to get saved to get him in you. Which you have of God. The Holy Ghost is God's gift to us. You are not your own. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit. So what's he saying here? Well, the temple backdrop that Paul's giving us here, that we, we look at the cultural context of this, the temple backdrop is Paul's bringing them back around. He says, guys, I want you to understand something, Corinthian believers. He says, I don't care how you practice, how you practice your religion and what you did before you got saved. And I know your, con your concept of the temple was one that, that basically the body was involved in worship, but your context of the body being involved with worship was in a fleshly matter. He said, I said, listen, your body needs to be involved with worship, but not in a fleshly matter. You have to understand, first of all, who owns you and what he expects of you and what does he do through your body? Is God, does God have full control of you? So he says to them, you're the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so now he's getting to this place where he says in verse 20, he closes it all up and he says this, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, how do you do that? 
Because you're gonna, you and I come in here tonight, we are tired, we are hungry, we've had a long day, we're looking forward to going home, at least someone's looking forward to going home, amen, and uh, you gotta, you're looking forward to going home very soon, and you're, you're, whatever you've got to do, and winding up, and then you're going to start the same, the same routine tomorrow, same routine Friday, and then Saturday, you're going to kind of do your thing, and some of you be involved with ministry, and then we get ourselves ready for church on Sunday, and uh, whatever, whatever we've done during the week, we just kind of leave it behind, and we hope we hear a, a message or something that's said that kind of intrigues us and kind of moves us, but the truth of the matter is, We've kind of forgotten along the way, and we've forgotten before coming here today, that this body I have, I've got to take care of this body, and I've got to give respect to this body, because it's not my body. This body belongs to God. It's His. You're not your own. So how do you glorify God through your body and your spirit? How do we glorify Him in 2019? How, is God, how does God get the glory out of His body? Well, let me give you some things we're done. Notice number one, there needs to be a death. There needs to be a death. Now, I'm not telling you to drop dead. That's not what I'm saying, amen? That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to notice Romans chapter 6. Notice verses 12 to 14. Romans chapter 6 is one of the great underpreached chapters of the Bible. Because Romans chapter 6 is one of several chapters in the New Testament that emphasizes what we call sanctification. Because when you're, when you're saved, when you get saved, the next step is sanctification. It's, it's, the, it's the setting apart of your life and your body for God. So notice what Paul says there, because again, the Roman believers, that culture, they were struggling with the same problem. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for it's sin shall have not dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. You know what he's saying here? If we're not to yield ourselves to sin, what does that mean? Well, something's got to die. Something has to be crucified. And we battle with the flesh every day. All of us battle with the flesh. And it's kind of like the old Indian said, as, we, as we've used many times in the illustration, the old Indian that got saved. This Native American Indian got saved, and someone noticed the great transformation of his life. Here was a man who used to be an idol worshiper, living for God, and telling people about the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And somebody asked him, when they said, Chief, they said, you're a different man. He says, you used to be a pagan idol worshiper. You used to be a drunkard. You used to smoke all the time. You did all these indulgences. You did those. What's the difference? He said, son, there are two dogs inside of me. If you can imagine, he says, imagine there's two dogs inside of me. And he says, one's good, and one's bad. The one that I feed the most is the one that wins. Hey, listen, we have to make a decision. We start 2019. Are you going to feed the flesh or are you going to feed the spirit? The one that you feed the most will determine which one controls you. And Paul made very clear to the Roman believers. He makes very clear to the Corinthian believers. He made very clear to the Colossian believers that consecration is not an option. Consecration is an obligation we have to God. It's a command. need to put to death the flesh. Pastor, you don't understand. I've got, I've got some desires that I'm having a hard time. You've got to put it to death. Pastor, you understand, I've got these cravings. And, hey, listen, the first place Jesus got tempted in as he was completing his 40 days of fasting, the very first place he got tempted was in the area of appetite and hunger. Turn those stones into bread. The devil knows when you're hungering for something. He knows how to hit you when you're the lowest. He knows how to get to you when your appetites or your cravings and your desires are very strong. George Mueller said this, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller's opinions, his preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world's approval or censure, died to the approval of blame, even of my brethren and my friends. Since then, I've, I've studied only to show myself a prudent to God. Let me tell you the secret to overcoming a lot of problems you have in life. The secret to overcoming criticism, the secret of overcoming being discouraged easily, the, scur the, 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 the secret to overcoming cravings and desire. I mean, all that is just simply one thing. You need to die to self. You need to put that old man up on the cross every day and let that old man hang there and realize as every day starts anew, you've got to put that old man back up there again and crucify that old flesh. There must be a death place. Listen, if you're dabbling in Samaria, you've got some things that are controlling you more than you control it. It's time to put that thing to death tonight, amen? Kill it. There must be a death. But notice, secondly, there must be a dedication. We see Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and this was a study we had in our adult growth groups. If you're not enrolled in an adult growth group, get enrolled in an adult growth group right now. 
Paul spent 11 chapters in Romans talking about the wonderfulness of salvation. He defines it by, as the mercies of God. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a public presentation, your bodies, not a dead body. He says, present as a living sacrifice. They were familiar with the concept of a dead sacrifice, once and done. He said, no, God saved you. You're going to keep on living. You're going to keep on going. You're going to present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. He's talking about dedication there in Romans 12, 1. Dedication is realizing, coming to this idea, grip with the idea and the thought that we are not our own. We belong to God. And so because we belong to God, we are making a public dedication of our lives to God. Hey, every young person in this room, every young person who's never done that, if you're saved, you ought to make a dedication of your life to Jesus Christ as soon as tonight. Every adult here tonight, if you know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you've never dedicated your life to him, you need to do what he says in Romans 12. You need to come before the Lord and present your body a living sacrifice. Now notice some things when he makes his implication. Number one, this dedication must be a total dedication. I get men sometimes who are very not not knowledgeable about the word, say, well, pastor, I'll give God my hands. No, God doesn't want your hands. He wants all of you. Well, pastor, I'll, I'll give him two hours a week, and God, God help our soul. We ask people, how, many, how much time can you give the Lord? Hey, God has all your time, amen? Yeah, right. Well, God, God, you can have my mind after I retire. No, God wants your mind before you retire, amen? It must be a total dedication. Notice, secondly, it must be a tactical dedication. What do you mean by tactical? God has a plan. God doesn't want to use a part of you. He wants to use all of you. Amen? God, God's not like somebody going to a scrapyard. Oh, God, you know, I, here's a piece here. You know, some of our guys, they, you know, they know how to fix their own things. They go to a scrapyard and they find some stuff there. They find a piece there and they leave the rest. But God doesn't treat you and me like we're in a part of a scrapyard. Amen? That's not how he looks at us. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. He doesn't take one piece so that's good and leaves the rest in the scrapyard. And he takes all of you. Hey, he takes a beat up old jalopy like you and me and he does something great with it. Amen? It's dedication so God can use you. And we read the rest of Romans 12. Man, it's wonderful. God describes how he uses us. But listen, it must be a timely dedication. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. You read the context here? He's talking about the will of God. When does he want it? Right now. Right now. I'm thankful we have a God who's right now. Amen? Right now. Spurgeon said, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. William Carey said this, to know the will of God, we need two things. We need an open Bible, and we need an open map. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) It's a great mystery statement there. There must be a dedication. There must be a death. But notice 1 Corinthians 9. Would you notice that? There must be a discipline. Paul knew the weaknesses of our flesh, his flesh, the temptations we face. He said, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, and so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What Paul was saying there? He faced the same struggles everybody in this room has. It's hard to get up in the morning. It's hard not to eat certain kind of foods. All of these kind of things. But he says, you know what? I'm not like a shadow boxer. I'm not beating the air. He says, I realize I'm dealing with a real enemy. That enemy's me. And he looked at himself in the midst of a pagan culture. And he watched all those people as he surveyed the city of Corinth. You go back and read Acts 18. As he surveyed the city of Corinth. He saw those nights when sun set. That city came alive with immorality. I mean, I think there were demonic entities moving all over the city because of stuff going on in there. And he saw men that were possessed. And he saw women that were possessed. He saw them wasting their lives. But he saw those same people come to the gospel of Jesus Christ and get their lives saved. 
He saw those same people, their minds were so warped and messed up about what their bodies were. He had to get them back to realizing, listen, that's not what you're supposed to do. So he uses him in the context here in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, look it, I, I have to, he says, I have to keep my body under it. I'm going to tell you tonight, everybody hates talking about discipline. Do you know being disciplined is a scriptural thing? Being disciplined is scriptural. Disciplining our time, disciplining our thoughts, disciplining our speech disciplining our mannerisms. We get up on all these tangents. We want to know all these esoterical things. Listen, if you're not responsible for the things that God has given to you, don't worry about all the other stuff. You need to be responsible for the things that God has given to you. Amen? So we see the discipline. Paul talks about this discipline. And as we close tonight, notice one other thing. Notice the destiny, though. Bring into subjection. Where does this, what, what's this all got to do with the body? Well, let's think about it. what's going to happen with the body then? Well, we turn to dust. Well, I know that. But what happens to the body? Paul's not done with the body. He starts off in chapter, he starts off going to Corinth and he sees these people giving their bodies for the wrong purposes. He goes over to chapter three and he talks about our body being the temple of the Holy Ghost. He says, we are not our own. In 1 Corinthians chapter six, he talks about our body that we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. And again, our body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. And we go over to chapter eight and he says, our body's the temple of the Holy Ghost and we've been bought with a price. And then chapter nine, he talks about keeping under the body. But what happens to this body? Well, we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and notice the destiny of the body. Listen, God thinks very highly about your body. Because we go through this process we talk about in salvation. When you get saved, we call that justification. Justification is when you and I are saved from the penalty of sin. Amen? Amen. But we go from salvation to sanctification. With sanctification, listen, we get to Romans chapter 6. We see we're free from the power of sin. Sin doesn't have to reign over us. Yield not your members unto to deeds of unrighteousness. But we don't stop there because at the end goal of life, when we die, our body goes back into the grave and it turns into dust. But there's a day coming when there'll be glorification. And glorification is when we are saved from the presence of sin, praise God. And glorification is God looking at this body of yours and mine. Jesus said, he was talking about his, the, 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 his body, which he called his body a temple in John 2, 21. Jesus was referring to what? The resurrection. He was talking about destroy this body, this temple, and in three days I'll raise up again. Jesus is emphasizing the great doctrine of the resurrection of the believer, beginning with his resurrection, which is a glorious resurrection. And we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we close tonight. And notice in verse 50, he says this. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, the way we are right now cannot go to heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The way we are right now cannot. It won't happen. It won't happen that way. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But notice what happens. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's a great nursery verse. Amen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. What's happening? Hey, glorification, brother and sister in Christ. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptor shall put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 25. Death is swallowed in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's happening here? What's going to happen to our bodies? It's going to go through the glorification process. It's going to be transformed. This mortal will become immortal. This corruptible shall become incorruptible. What kind of body will we have? Look at Philippians 3.21. But who shall change our vile body? that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working thereby he is able even to subdue all things else. Do you see what's going to happen in the future? This body is going to be transformed to the same kind of body Jesus had. It's a glorified body. Hey, you know what that tells you? We better take good care of these bodies. We better, we better put these bodies to good use. We better, we better not get this mindset we're going to recycle the body. We ought to decide tonight, first of all, this body needs to be dedicated as a living sacrifice to God. Second, we need to decide that we're going to put to death the flesh. And third, we need to decide that we're going to keep this body under. We're going to work at being disciplined with our life. Hey, listen, you give me a disciplined church, and I'll give you a church that will take the city by for Jesus Christ, hands over. You give me a disciplined Christian, I'll tell you what, I'll find a Christian that, 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 that's got a soul winning fervor and has a prayer life and a Bible reading time and they're living for God and they're fighting with sin. But listen, they got the victory over because they realize you've got to bring this body under. We have a wonderful destiny. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Amen? So go back to 1 Corinthians 3 and as we close tonight, notice the conclusion. 
You're not your own. Paul summarizes this way, and your flesh dwelleth no good thing. So Paul had a prayer in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, maybe in your notes. He told the believers of Thessalonica who dealt with the same issues, the very God of peace shall sanctify you wholly, and pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved plainless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul prayed that. That's a prayer you and I can pray for those in our family, in our home. God, preserve us, spirit, soul, and body, blameless before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you care about the body? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because this body is going to be transformed into the same likeness as his glorious body. We find that Philippians 3.21, we find that over in First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It's a given. And we read here as we close 1 Corinthians 3, notice verse 17. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Now the word destroy is very clear what it says there. I'm not sure how God does it and when he chooses to do that. But I was reading over the other day in Proverbs and it's talking about someone who gives themselves over to immoral behavior when disease sets in, if you're familiar with those passages there in Proverbs, disease sets in, it shall eat up thy flesh. You live haphazardly, wrong diet, insufficient rest, living under stress all the time, not dealing with hereditary issues in the right way that you've inherited. We're setting ourselves up for self-destruction. He said, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So what's that all got to be? say tonight? Bodyguard. You better guard this body. You better take good care of it. The Bible says about husbands, they are to love their wives like they love their own body. The Bible says that he uses the analogy, he says that the, that the church of the living God is the body of Christ. We need to take care of this body, we, this body. Is that close enough? Let's take care of this body, amen? Not just this one, this body. Don't abuse the body. Don't hurt the body. We need to decide tonight that this body, the body of Christ here, it is to be unified. It is to be one in Jesus Christ. I realize we have a lot of different personalities to make up what's going on, but we must understand something. If God chose to use the analogy of the body to talk about the body, to talk about the church, we need to understand something. It needs to be whole. We need to immerse ourselves back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and remind ourselves that it's not different parts of the body going different directions. Everything must be synced together. And as a church, let's be synced together. As we start this year, let's be synced, advancing the cause of Christ. Let's be in sync together. We're united. We're going to pray. We're united. We're going to read the Bible. We're united. We're going to come to preaching. We're united. We're going to come to church. We're united. We're going to live for God. We're united. We're going to serve Jesus Christ. We're united. We're going to do something great for God. We're united. We're going to take up offerings. We're united. We're not going to come with some goofy doctrine to the church. We're just going to decide tonight, this is God's church, and we're going to keep it healthy. Amen? Amen. Keep this body healthy. Keep this body healthy. Bodyguard.